following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Welcome, you're on Behind the Lines 98.3 FM in Canberra and you're talking to Scotty and Zena this morning and that was the famous or infamous John Williamson with Rip Rip Wood Chip. This week uh, we are going to do a continuation of our coverage of the logging of the vulnerable New South Wales South Coast Forest post the 2019-2020 bushfire devastation as I'm sure everybody listening would know all about that. And we're welcoming in studio with us forest activists Sean Burke. So welcome to the show, Sean. And we also have via phone Harriet Swift, who's calling us from the New South Wales South Coast. And uh, Harriet is the Deputy Convener of the South East Region of the Conservation Alliance. She's also an ANU graduate and she lives in the beautiful New South Wales far south coast in the forests and she's observed the logging industry at Crows Range for quite some time. She's been a very active campaigner to try and save the forest from wood chipping and her main reasons to protect the forests are the forest wildlife and the climate change issues and just to view the forest as more of a, a compelling reason to uh, preserve for the community and to stop the logging and it's uh, over 20 years she's been an activist on the south coast so welcome to the show Harriet how, how are you doing on the phone there? Oh, pretty good there. Wonderful are you able to hear us here quite well? Yes, yes very well okay. and I must say it was so good to hear that song because <laughs> we, we don't often hear the word wood chip these days um, from the industry they know it's on the nose with the, with the public so they use euphemisms like fibre but you never you never hear them talk about wood chips. Well, like, we all know that's what it's about. Yes. When William says rip, rip wood chip, it really gives you an idea of just how brutal yes. um, the attack on the forest is. So, um, Sean, I'll just get you to chat here so make sure Harriet can hear you as well. Um, okay, hi, how Harriet. Was your, uh, <laughs> how was your trip into the studio this morning with all of that rain? I understand you're at the Folk Fest and uh, it's yes. a pretty wet night there last night. It was. Um, it held off fairly well until late. So, um, yeah, I got back to my digs and... Oh, so you you weren't in a tent, so that's no, um, not, not yeah. staying in the tent. Yeah. You are a smart man. <laughs> I think there's almost given it, like every third Easter or something, the folk fest gets a big dump, a big deluge. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's wonderful to have you both here. Um, I guess probably the best way to start this would be to talk about um, why you got involved in protecting the South Coast Forest, because a lot of people that we've talked to in the last little while have never been activists before. Like Some people have a history of activism, but a lot of people have come to activism fairly recently because there's so much to be an activist for, like there's so much going on, <laughs> that people who would never dream of going to a protest or a blockade have suddenly said enough, you know, we or that they got burnt out during the bushfires or their f- friends and family did and they want to see something done. So, um, Sean, would you like to start and tell us um, how you got involved with the forest protection? Well, I was an activist um, down at Tilba for heritage protection of um, the Tilba Conservation Area back from 82 through till 88 and then got into the forest issue in 1988 when the then Forestry Commission of New South Wales decided to log Gulaga a creation place for the Aboriginal people. Mm, the mountain, sacred mountain of Gulaga. Yes, Bulliger. and uh, that got me really going. So I started a campaign then and I haven't stopped since. <laughs> I'm, I'll be going until they stop the logging of our native forests. 
Well, fantastic. And and Harriet, you've had quite a, a long history of being in activism there and 20 years on the South Coast in particular. Um, what, what got you involved and how did you get started? Well, actually, it was pretty similar to Sean's. I, I live in the bush near Bega and um, almost as soon as we moved down here from Canberra, I found out that the, the Forestry Commission was about to log the forest next door and I was just horrified. And my experience with that logging, you know, made me realise it wasn't just next door to me, it was everywhere. And, uh, you know, you, I couldn't stop. <laughs> people, um, people sort of sometimes sneer a bit at what they call NIMBYs, but, you know, if we don't look after our backyards, who will? Well, yeah. the ultimate NIMBYs would be our First Nations people, right? That have well, had to endure the worst of it. Well, there's also <laughs> NAMBYs, not in anyone's back. Yeah, yeah, I like that, <laughs> NAMBYs. That's a good one, Scotty. I'm going to borrow that one from you one day. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Harry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Yes, well, I realised fairly quickly that, that my backyard was a lot bigger than just the forest next door. It was the whole region. And, uh, you know, it was just impossible to stop. Mm. And was... Was that in um, the sort of bigger Eden, Eden area? Is that what you're talking about there? Yes, yes. Okay. Although, of course, the um, the region covered by the wood chip mill, the wood chipping industry, goes right up to almost as far as Nowra. Wow! Right down to the Victorian border. Hmm. So you've got sort of yeah, very far south, and then you've also got heading up north as well, right? So you've yes. got the whole strip of that beautiful east coast. Yes, and of course it goes into Victoria too, although there's a, a halt on logging in Victoria mm. at the moment, which is, yes. which is great. <laughs> is, that, mm. is that to do with the koala protection or is that something a separate issue? Um, that's a, because they had a victory in, in, the, in the court in Victoria. They, they um, took Vic Forests to court over its failure to protect a number of threatened species and until the the uh, logging agency Vic Forest can um, d- demonstrate that they can do that safely without harming those species. They can't continue. So there's just no logging happening in Victoria. Mm, that's brilliant. Well, they're usually pretty sneaky. They often try and get around things, and it's really yeah, nice yeah. to see um, a victory against Big Corp like that. Well, that's good. And WA's also had a bit of a win. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Just what you know? Um, yes. Well, um, the, the um, WA government has announced an end to native forest logging and, and this year will actually be the last year in which it happens there, which is fantastic. Mm. And they've done it in a really sensible way too because right from the beginning they've done it in a way that you know respects the, the workers in the industry and involves them in, in TAFE training, retraining, um, all sorts of other ways to assist them to to transfer to to other occupations or other other sectors, so it's they're a real model for what a state government can do, mm-hmm. and we're just hoping that the the new Labor government in New South Wales might look at them for as a model. Mm. Well, I guess well, while you're looking at the actual logging crews themselves, I mean, I know that there's. Uh, crews in New South Wales from Victoria and from Tasmania at least so there's not actually that many folks out there working in the industry what, 
what, what is the jobs argument for logging <clears throat> and against? Um, it's pretty weak, actually, because this industry now, it's, it's all about protecting huge, expensive machines, not workers. You know, the, the, the average logging operation uses machines that are um, at least a couple of million dollars worth. And that's what they're protecting. But even those can be redeployed in, in the plantation sector mm. and even in other industries too, like a, a, a mechanical harvester, which is the, mach, the machine that cuts the trees down, um, can, can be fairly easily reconfigured to, to other uses, such as an excavator. So mm. it's, it's not, you know, they're not difficult problems to solve. Yeah, yeah, I guess... If for people out there who haven't been into a logging compartment, you might imagine a, a, a harvester machine as a the thing that you might see digging on a big site, but instead of the digger thinger on it, it's got a great big grabber thinger and a chainsaw, which yeah. grabs and chainsaws trees and just pops them in a little pile and then... Another yeah, so machine, it's, it's, it's another bulk, machine bulk harvesting, right? pops them yeah. onto a truck and away they go down to the chip mill. And those machines yep. were um, provided by the Commonwealth and the industry blamed us for protesting for the loss of jobs, but it was those harvesters that did people out of so many jobs in the, in the, yeah. the logging industry. Now, were the workers very aware of that? Because that was obviously a spin they're putting on it, for, you know, propaganda spin. Um, were the workers aware that it wasn't the protesters who were causing them to lose their jobs and it was, you know, the um, evolution of, of big machinery and technology? I think they swallowed it. I think mm -hmm. they, you know, believe in their industry, and and but surely they could have seen that, you know, the, the, where they had a, a larger crew, and when they got one of those machines, it just came down to two people. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, they'd have to have seen it. Because you remember the early days of protesting, like you started in the eighties, Sean, as you did Harriet. Like you know, there was always a lot of animosity between the inverted commas greenies oh, back yeah. then and the logging, and it got pretty violent, and pretty nasty, and I'm sure it still does in places too, but. Now we're looking at activists, and activists are a different creature now. They're, they're your average mum and dad. They're your average grandparent. They're your average, um, you know, uh, ordinary person who's never taken action before. Yeah, so I'll it's go like to the, a blockade. I look like a freak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we've got a lot of farmers involved now. Yeah, so and there's, young people yeah, too. So there's, yeah. there's no typical activist anymore. No. It's just everyday people who've had enough. So I'm hoping that's changed maybe the view of some of the, the workers that they can see the, the I don't know, that the trend is changing, right? Well, hopefully the government can see it. They're the ones who need to see it. It's, mm. you know, during this whole, all the protesting that I've done and, and um, sort of briefings and stuff, um, the important thing was to respect those workers because they're just doing a job. It's the government that our argument's with and uh, I think that's really important to, um, you know, show them that respect and also in the argument that for the ending of native forest mm -hmm. logging that we have a just transition mm -hmm. out of that industry for those workers. Well, there's a lot of money that's um, been talked about that's actually going to be um, <coughs> profitable if we shift to... Uh, a conservation mindset, right? Like we're actually going to be generating more income. A lot of these current practices are actually losing money left, right and centre. Like they're not financially are. viable. So there's really no argument to sustain them. 
Well, Harriet would know the millions each year that we pay for them to take our forests away, Harriet. Well, they do. We pay for it in a number of ways. There, there are the trading losses of the Forestry Corporation. And in the last couple of years, uh, they lost $20 million, And then the year after that, last year, they lost $9 million on native forest logging. But there are also... Um, things called um, the community service obligation, which the Forestry Corporation gets, and it gets direct payments from the state treasury for certain functions that it, that it carries out, that if it were a private business, it would have to pay for itself. And then there are um, grants on top of all of that from both the Commonwealth and the state governments for particular activities and projects that they do. And there's, they're sometimes very difficult to trace. There are things like um, building a new bridge in the, in the middle of nowhere in the forest and, and they'll pass that off as oh, for a community down the road. But in fact, <laughs> it's a bridge that's big enough and strong enough to, to um, carry uh, the heavy logging machines. So that's like um, Joe Bjorki-Peterson building the highway that just went to his property in Queensland, right? <laughs> yes. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you go down to Tasmania, the logging roads are incredibly well built. and yeah. So none of this pothole thing that we're all talking about all over the country <laughs> with oh, no, all of the rain-damaged no. roads with the massive potholes. Well, the thing, that's another mm-hmm. cost to local government mm-hmm. because a lot of those trucks and heavy equipment they use those roads and damage mm. those roads and there's no compensation to the local government who have to look after those roads. So that's another cost. Mm. Yeah. We had the Tarago folks about the incinerator on the show a few weeks ago and their road is almost undrivable because of all the viola trucks going backwards and forwards to the uh, re- inverted commas recycling plant. Well, methane <laughs> producing, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You can always tell when a an area of forest is about to be logged because the road's really nice. Oh, that's so <laughs> yeah. tragic, isn't it? Yeah. Drive through the forest, isn't this a nice road? Uh-oh. Uh. <laughs> well, so, you, you both belong to an organisation um, which we'd love to find out a bit more about. So it's the South Coast Region Conservation Alliance, also known as CIRCA, which was established in t- um, September 2005. Could you tell us about CIRCA and, and its involvement in what's going on on the coast? Harriet or uh, Sean, who wants to jump in there? Go on, Harriet, you're the convener. Circus <laughs> <laughs> um, is a, an organisation that other organisations join. We don't, we don't have individual members. Yeah, we're an umbrella. Then, yeah. Yes, it's an umbrella group of, of a number of other um, activist groups around the whole region. There's a, about, um, I'm not sure exactly how many now, it's about... 13 or 14 groups are members now. Um, uh, What more can I say about that? uh, Our primary uh, goal, strategic goal in campaigning at the moment is the forest. And in fact, it has been ever since CERCA was established. So your your goal is to basically exit from native forest logging, right? Like that's that's the the prime motivator behind all of this is to just end native forest logging period across the country. That's correct. And of course, we work with um, other regional groups around Australia too, because there's an awful lot of 
challenges that we have in common and a lot of good information that we share um, with them from time to time. Mm. So we're not just looking at our own forest issues. Mm. So I guess on, on, on that topic... What could replace native forest logging? I mean, what, what are the logs actually being used for at this point? Well, the thing that drives the, the whole industry between Nowra and the Victorian border is the wood shipping, and that's all exported. It all goes to um, either China, Taiwan or Japan. Mm. And it, there's, there's talk more and more frequently these days about the need to maintain the industry because we have a housing shortage, we've got a boom in the construction sector, but none of this in the Eden region is going for, for house construction. Probably a tiny amount in a bit further north around Yurubadala might be used for the things like decking, but... Most of it is export wood shipping. Mm. We don't need it. So we were talking before about how the, I guess, the industrialisation, the biggering of the machinery, smalled the, oh god, mm. <laughs> made the, the logging crews a lot smaller. And how has the wood chipping affected jobs in the area, uh, particularly in regard to uh, sawmills? Uh, well. The, we have to remember that the wood chipping industry was founded on the myth that it uses waste wood. So it's always been an essential um, part of government policy to have at least one sawmill in each region. So you can say that that's the primary product and the wood chipping's the byproduct. So they've, they've made a special point of, of propping up a, a few sawmills around the region. But even with that, it's been very hard to maintain them. In Eden, for example, the, the one remaining sawmill um, in the last few years, Blue Ridge, closed because it lost the wood supply agreement to the chip mill. Mm. So the chip mill became the monopoly operator in, in the whole region. Every log that was cut, every tree that was cut down went there. Now, what they do with those saw logs is still unclear. They've said at various times that they'll be making um, pallets, they'll be making briquettes, nothing of um, high value and nothing of any use in construction. But um, it's the wood chipping, and it's completely useless as far as the construction industry is concerned. Yes, I remember back in 1990 or 91. We had a protest down on Edrum Road going into the chip mill and we put a uh, painted a pedestrian crossing on the road and just walked backwards and forwards. <laughs> we had a huge queue of log trucks coming into the chip mill and after the police came and, and moved us and were uh, letting us go through, went up onto an embankment overlooking the road and I was there with an old forester who had retired from the industry and he said that about 70 to 80% of that timber going into that chip mill was millable timber in his day. Now, that's what they call waste. Mm. It's just BS. 
Well, yeah, well tree, trees don't really need a trunk. Yeah. So we've got, I've got a, a, some stats here that say during 2020, 96% of the trees that were felled in the New South Wales region where you are, Harriet, were turned into wood chips. 96%. Yep. And 1.5% of that was for firewood. So we're destroying yeah. what's left of our forests after the bushfires, which they're already fragile, they're already vulnerable, and we're taking what's left and basically throwing it in the garbage. It's just, you know, unconscionable. It just doesn't make any sense to me how a government that wants to look after its nation would allow this to happen. It, because there's no profit. When profit comes in, you can say, okay, they're, they're looking purely at, at a profit angle and they're taking, you know, they're compromising because of profit. But there's no profit either. So, so why is this happening? Like, how, <laughs> That's probably the golden the question. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's just criminal. It's yeah. just totally criminal. And they're... I can't find an answer for it. The only answer I can say is we still have this colonial mentality of tear out the resources and ship them overseas. Yeah, it makes no sense whatsoever. We remember during the potato famine, part of the big reason that all the Irish um, starved was not just a lack of failure of the potato crop, but they took all of the food that was grown in Ireland and shipped it to different parts of the British Empire. Yep. So the Irish didn't get to eat anything that they were growing yep. in their country. So the same mentality, right? It's yes. just it's it's actually psychopathy. If we want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it, it's it's it, that's psychopathy to me. I'm sorry. There's there's no no sense in it whatsoever. Now there is a legal framework that regulates logging in coastal New South Wales, and I believe it states that an operation must not be conducted for the primary purpose of producing low quality logs, <laughs> including salvage and firewood and pulp logs. So if there is a legal framework, how is that not being enacted? Ah, well, that, in fact, it's... I wish the listeners public, could see um, both Sean and Scotty having a chuckle here because <laughs> you, <laughs> you kind of know the answer to this one, but sorry, Harriet. In, um, uh, publicly available um, documentation about the yields from um, logging operations, you can tell that some actually yield 100% pulp logs, that is, logs for wood chips. Um, but they get around that legal difficulty by saying that it's a thinnings operation. It's not really normal logging, it's just silver um, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so it doesn't count, it's not subject to that law. Well, the, we also can't challenge it in court because they, in New South Wales, um, they passed a law that says we cannot uh, take forestry corporation or forestry commission as they were back then to court as they have in Victoria. So uh, that, I would love to see that one tested in court. <laughs> yeah. So they are legally immune, are you saying? Yes. The only, the yeah. only, the only way they can be taken to court and be the Land and Environment Court is through the EPA, the Environment Protection Authority, and their uh, government department under control of the government. <laughs> so the, the victory, the recent victory that the Victorian forest campaigners had, which has stopped logging in that state, could not happen in New South Wales no. because that challenge could not be made. Yeah. Surely under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Act you could take them to court? Uh, no. <laughs> no, the RFAs assume oh, that what, what's all an RFA? regional forest agreements right. that um, give the authority to the New South Wales government to 
trash these forests, um, the RFAs assume that the provisions of the EPBC Act, the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, the federal act, they assume that they are being adhered to. There's no test, there's no nothing. It's the assumption is part of the RFAs. And so someone can just say, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing yep. and they go, okay, fine, carry on. Yeah, there's no check. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a recipe for disaster, which it is. Yep. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, someone might want to talk about green policing at this yeah. point. <laughs> so we had a couple of weeks ago, we had Sue Higginson, Greens MP, on the show. Yeah. And she's very active. So you just had a New South Wales election. Do you have any hope for the, with the results of the election? Mm. Do you have any hope for any change at all or any um, policy, uh, addressing the policies and the legislation around logging? I have huge hope. Um, I, I was very disappointed when it looked like the Labor government would rule in their own right, but as it's turned out that they have to um, join with Greens or Independents, that can be the lever that brings about the end to native forest logging and you know action on climate change. And if they end native forest logging, that's a huge contribution towards towards carbon sequestration mm -hmm. and Massive. so yeah i'm hopeful very very hopeful what about you harriet um maybe not quite as optimistic <laughs> um the labor party got through the whole election campaign without making any commitments on on forests <laughs> other than for a, a rather vague commitment on the great koala national park on the north coast um, that's not necessarily a bad thing because I, I think if we pushed them a bit harder, they might have jumped the wrong way on it. So it's maybe better that they haven't um, made any commitments. As Sean said, the, the fact that they're going to require the support of pack, um, crossbenchers to get a lot of their program through is, is good. And But, you know, the bottom line is ending native forest logging is that the quickest cheapest and easiest way to make a, a really meaningful cut in our carbon emissions. Yeah. And they will be looking for things like that. Yeah, well, that and uh, just encouraging all our farmers to go for soil building methods. And we're, uh, yeah, we're a long way. One very good thing that's happened already is that um, the Minister for Responsible for Energy is the Environment Minister, um, Penny Sharp, and she's been a, a, a very strong supporter of the forests over the years. And so hopefully that's going to give a bit of strength to um, the, our goal of, of, of ending burning of, of wood for electricity generation. Mm. Well, I just saw that there is, yeah, that there's this plan. Sorry, Zena, can you just explore that a little bit? Harriet? I was going to yeah, ask her about ah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was about the um, the burning uh, wood for electricity under the renewable energy mandate. Oh, so renewable. Which sounds you know, like another bit of greenwashing going on there. Oh, yeah. It's not something that's affecting us directly here yet. Um, we had, did have a brush with a wood-fired power station proposal for the chip mill in the past, but there's a number of projects on the north coast that are looking at burning wood chips for, for electricity and they're calling it renewable and green mm. but 
um, hopefully a different perspective on that might, might stop those things going ahead. There's also the, the lack of knowledge about the end use of the wood chips that go out of Eden uh, into Asia, whether they are used to burn for electricity as well. The state government probably can't, or the state minister probably can't control that, no. but um, I've, I've got no doubt that some of the Eden wood chips, particularly since the bushfires, have been used for um, power stations in Japan. The, the, the former owner of the Eden chip mill, Nippon Paper, has a couple of wood-fired power stations at, at their pulp mills in Japan, and, and they are continuing to buy some chips from, from Eden. So um, I think it's highly likely that's happening. So they're calling this renewable energy, but what it's doing, it's undercutting and displacing true renewable power. Like we've got, you know, wind, solar, tidal, geothermal sources, and they're talking about burning burning wood chip and calling it green. So well, why is there not an effort to make a transition to the, the genuine renewable power? Uh, CFMEU? <laughs> but, but also... For our international listeners, that's the construction, forestry and mining... <laughs> An energy union. Yes. This is a, a huge problem internationally. In in North America and Europe, um, burning wood is a massive industry and it has been accepted as green power. And, and we're sort of taking, our industry is taking its cues from them. In, in Europe, they've got away with it. And, you know, people are making money out of it. And, you know, they've think maybe the same thing could happen here. Well, I guess Europe has got rid of all its old growth many, many years ago for shipping and, and, yeah, for building and the mining chips, and yeah. all sorts <laughs> yeah. of stuff. So they denuded the entire... They're probably um, using plantation wood over yeah, there. It's, it's mostly pine, like a lot of it's a pine forest replantation of the old oak forests that they took down for the shipbuilding in the mm. uh, late 1700s. And a lot comes from North America. Most of it is coming from um, USA and Canada. Well, and they, they don't need trees either, really, yeah. no, do they? <laughs> well, you know, it, most of our listeners know I was a resident of Canada for 25 years and I saw some horrific logging going on there of old growth forest. You know, we're talking a single trunk of a tree took up the entire logging truck. Mm. That's one tree. And you're watching that go down the highway in pieces. Yeah. Um, there's a protest, huge ongoing protest at a place called Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island, if anyone wants to look that up and find out what's going on in Canada. So the same thing everywhere. And that was a, um, a prime minister who was elected on a green platform, Justin Trudeau, who mm. had vowed to protect um, the environment. Mm. And he's, Is that the Labour equivalent sort of... Uh, well, they yeah. call it liberal, he's, he's, but he's not equivalent to our liberal government. So mm. I'd say it probably is similar to that. The NDP in Canada would probably be more uh, aligned with Labour principles. And I think Jagmeet Singh's the leader of the NDP there. But um, I digress. But yeah, that is a, a huge issue where you've got supposedly a, a Greens conscious government um, continuing to allow the devastation, not just in logging, but in all sorts of primary industry and, you know, the the pipeline that was never supposed to be built Tar and all these sands. other things. Yeah, yeah, endless, endless. And it's everywhere. And this, there's a sort of a nefarious quality to it. Like, if it's not really doing financial return and it's, like you said, old colonial 
mentality, there's got to be more to it than that. There must be a very small percentage of people profiting and, and doing quite well out of the deals that are being done um, that they're not willing to, um, you know, to sort of take a stand and say, oh, we don't actually need this. It's not producing anything that we can use. Well, I guess a question that mm. could come out of that is, are the finances of the State Forestry mm. Corporation transparent and available? Mm. Do we know where Sean shaking all his head this, at all this money's <laughs> going? Can they be made transparent? Can there be a demand to? They're, they're a lot more transparent now than they were a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It was only relatively recently that they published separate um, financial uh, results for their plantation sector and their native forest sector. And until then, they used to lump them all together so that it was a you had to be a, an accountant or, or a magician to, to work out what, what came from what sector. Mm. But now they do actually publish separate ones. They're, they're not always completely satisfactory because there are some um, areas where there are plantations and uh, native forests operating and some of the costs, they'll, they'll lump entirely into one sector or the other to, to favour the results that they want. But um, it is a lot better than it used to be. And that's largely been due to pushing from Greens members in the state parliament. David Shoebridge, for many years, um, pushed that and, and he was quite successful in getting, getting a lot of that information made available. So we mentioned the RFAs. Let's get a little bit deeper into that. I mean, there's recently been a, a new RFA for New South Wales. Is that correct? Yeah. That was... What was that, last year, Harriet? Uh, the year before, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it goes quickly Time as we wise, get older, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> so what is an RFA? And Well, the, the, the Regional Forest Agreement, it's an agreement between the state government and the federal government. Um, and it sets down the framework for the logging industry. So there's RFAs now in New South Wales, in uh, Victoria and Western Australia. Uh, I think that's all. I don't think there are any in South or, or Queensland. No, there aren't. No. And um, so that provides the framework and then the actual practices comes down to what's called the IFOAs, the Integrated Forestry Operation... What is it, Harriet? Approval. Approval, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, that gets down to the nuts and bolts of it. So, yeah, there's two different... The, the IFOA um, is state-only, whereas the uh, RFAs are agreement between the state and the Commonwealth. Yeah, so I remember many years ago when the RFAs first came in, that was a 20-year contract which just determined the rules of logging and exempted logging from the law, essentially. How's the new one shaped up? Well, very similar. Yeah, it's a, it was a rollover. <laughs> Basically, it was just a yeah. rollover of the... See, what happened was they were supposed to be reviewed every five years, now, the first five years was reviewed at 12 years and then <laughs> the second review was done then at 13 years. I think they did that one. And then 
for the final one, um, it gave them then a rollover into the new one. So it's the same existing RFA, um, just rolled over without the things that are required to actually make it workable for the environment. Hmm. So this sets out the laws for logging, essentially, more or less. Yeah, you know. yeah. yeah. The legal framework That's for right. us. Yeah. And, and how are those laws enforced? EPA, uh, the only ones who can enforce them. But citizen science... So, so the Commonwealth side, the, yeah. the, the Commonwealth side of the RFAs was to relinquish its power to the states, effectively. But they did a couple of important things there. They, they gave up their power over exports. So they used to have to issue a licence for wood chip exports every year. And that became a focus... Um, for the early campaigners to to campaign against the renewal of, of those export licences. So they gave that up. And they also then also gave up the inclusion of forestry in the EPBC Act, the major Commonwealth um, law to protect the environment. So... You know, they have had a significant role. They might say, well, nothing to do with us, but it is. It's everything to do with the Commonwealth. They could make life a lot harder for the logging industry if they wanted to. <laughs> and they could stop giving money to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they could stop commissioning it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how many, like, we have how many, I don't know, how many crews are there doing the logging in, in New South Wales, roughly? Oh, the whole state. Oh, I don't know, or a region that you know, or South Coast region. <laughs> Let's go with South Coast. Um, there's probably only about maybe eight, eight or nine <laughs> at the moment. But um, this is—it's a strange period. There's, there's been actually a boom in what they call hazard reduction clearing since the bushfires on private property. And the number of logging operations in the Eden region is actually very low at the moment. There's only about four of them. <laughs> and that's because the the um, the, uh, the private land logging is, is increased so much. And that's a whole different problem. That That's mostly going to the chip mill as well, the, the logs from there, but it's... Um, it sort of complicated the issue a bit. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of different rules that apply apply to um, private land logging, and they're very lax. If you think the the rules in state forest are lax, the, the private land log, logging rules are far far worse. Well, we've seen that in the um, devastation of koala forests and koala habitat, and I know there's yes. been huge issues around that, um, with even you know people being accused of murder where they were actually. Um, you know, charged with murdering uh, conservation officers. Mm. Um, oh, that was that land clearing guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's, you know, as you said, privately there's um, 
it's harder to police, I guess, but can there not be some sort of uh, governing legislation that would cover all land as in, you know, protection of the land per se? Because we're just custodians. We're not, people like to think they're owners, but we're actually custodians. So is there not something we can, (laughs) I don't know, we can draw upon for that? Well, the private native forest legislation Mm -hmm. um, is basically hands over the responsibility to the local land service Mm and the local council, so the two of them. So it's not basically um, controlled from, from the state government itself. And as Harriet said, the, the requirements for that are very, very lax. It's, uh, it's a free-for-all. And there's no action that can be taken to uh, make it less lax? Well, how about... Closing the chip mill. <laughs> if you get rid of the market, there's nowhere to sell the exactly. damn things. Yes, that's that's, so that's that's the best way. Yeah. yeah so you'd, you'd reduce the demand, right? You yeah, the demand, well, exactly. Right? But yeah. during the fires, the chip mill burnt down. Can you tell us a bit of a story about that? Uh, it certainly uh, got a lot of damage anyway. It certainly did. Um, it did burn down. It, um, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was to stop laughing. <laughs> well, Sean was already laughing ahead of you in the studio, Harriet. So. Just quietly. <laughs> and no gloating. But I, uh. I managed. <laughs> One of my friends in East Gippsland wrote an um, uh, injudicious Facebook posting about it. And she was tormented for weeks afterwards mm. by loggers, you yeah. know. Oh. Death threats, all sorts of things. But uh, I was very well behaved. I kept my mouth shut. But do you find that the people doing the logging, like the people working in the chip mill, are they there because they just love doing that work because their dad did it and their granddad did it? Or is it just because of an economic requirement? Look, this is the job that's going and, you know, I'll get this one. You know, if they were given the opportunity to do something else that was more in alignment with conservation that still involved you know, the forestry industry, do you think they would be keen? Or are they really gripping onto that old culture? They're not. No. You know, you'd be amazed how, how often, um, you know, if I'm in Eden for something, um, some old logger will come up and, and say, you know, he's retired now or he's retired from the chip mill and it was the best thing he ever did. He, he's, he can live with himself a lot more. Easily. So there's this you know, tremendous there's, potential to, to, to make this transition then, right? You've got a willing workforce. Yeah. And there's financial incentive. So, you know, all the pieces are kind of pulling together for it. Yep. Certainly is. So with, with sorry, Scott, we digressed from your chip mill um, burning down here. So, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. You yeah. wanted to continue <laughs> on with that story? Yeah. So, so what happened after the chip mill did get damaged. Who cleaned it up? Well, um, uh, the army. <laughs> yeah, yep. here's a subsidy. So all yeah. federally funded resources going yeah. to the logging care, yeah, yeah. Were, the, the army was there for weeks. Um, RFS um, uh, groups from all over the state were there. There was a Tari RFS unit there for, for about a month. Rural fire service. Rural fire service, service yeah. yeah. They're mostly yeah. volunteers, right? They're mostly volunteers. Yep. yep. And yeah. because they had to put the fire out in the in the pile itself. 
because it was burning. Oh, so the massive pile of wood chips. Yep. Just smouldering away for fire. weeks. Yeah. It was. Yes, it was. They ended up um, pumping seawater, didn't they, into it? Yeah, they did. Yeah. It would have been good for the fire been, trucks. <laughs> it was rebuilt very quickly. Oh, yeah. And that, how, how that was funded is a bit of a mystery. If you look at the annual report of the company that operates the chip mill, Pentarg, there's a... Uh, information in that that says their insurance paid for it completely, no problems. But there were politicians. We had these pictures of um, Scott Morrison, um, National Party ministers at the time, going down to the chip mill, getting getting their photo taken there, you know, effectively waving blank checks around, mm-hmm. handing out taxpayers. But the, but Pentarch, according to its annual financial statement, um, had the whole lot paid for by by its insurance company. Mm-hmm. So you'd be very curious to know what those checks were for. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And the amount on those checks. We certainly would love to know. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, some of them we we do know, but they were you know they were sort of broken up into smaller amounts to make it look as if it wasn't quite as huge. Mm. So somebody's cooking the books there, having a, you know, fun with that. Mm-hmm. But that's your opinion. Yeah, that's, that is my opinion, yes. Scotty's always got to rein me in here because I say things that get me into trouble. Yes. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly, Allegedly. Yes. Um, But, you know, you've got this situation, right, where you've got an un- financially unviable industry of, of wood chip and the mill's burnt down in the fires, so you're rebuilding a financially unviable production plant and funding it through questionable means. Um, is that you know, is, is that not something that could, could be, I don't know, brought to the assembly or brought to, um, I don't know, some sort of debate around that before it just progresses willy-nilly, that you can just rebuild something that wasn't viable to start with? Was, wouldn't that be the great point in in the equation where you say, look, look, this isn't working. Let's just not not keep perpetuating it by rebuilding it. That would have been so good. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you have to get back to why are they doing it? You know, like if, if people who sit there and try and figure out how the government's going to spend its money and where they're going to allocate funds, like they're always trying to find money somewhere for something else, right? There's always money being moved around and, you know. Uh, you would think, okay, this is a loss. This is, this is making a loss mm-hmm. and we're going to put, throw money at it to rebuild it. There's, yeah. there's got to be something else going on there. It's just like my, my tick-tick mind is going, look, this, this that doesn't make any sense for how, how they operate, right? It, it comes down to jobs and votes. So it, it, it's promoting um, an yeah. idea yeah. to generate votes. Yeah, that's, mm. that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they try and buy the votes, yeah. and particularly in Eden, um, which is, you know, sort of within the state seat of Bega mm-hmm. and the federal seat of Eden, mm-hmm. Monero, um, it's a, a big industry um, in terms of um, the financial benefits for Eden that come out of um, the having the chip mill there. So the government would have to back it in terms of if, if they decided not to, they would then lose a lot of votes down there. But, um, but it 
According they're, to the they're polls, losing them anyway. Seventy yes. percent of the population has <laughs> voted right. for no no deforestation, no logging. So, yeah. I mean, if you can win seventy seven percent of the population over, that's seventy seven percent of the votes. Yeah. That you know, well, to me, sounds like it'd be a good a good idea. We yeah. now have Labor in both Eden Monero <laughs> and Bega seats. So, yeah, yeah it's. But we've, we've also got the Teals in Sydney who mm. um, are strongly anti logging. Yeah. And we've got at least one independent in the in the state parliament who who is probably two actually, but um, you know the public opinion has been ignored for years mm. on this matter, but it's getting harder and harder for governments to do that now. I think. Well, if it's translating into yeah. votes, if it's translating into some, you know a party that wants to stay in power, or you know um, individual representatives that want to stay in power in their region, then. That would make sense to pay attention to what the voice of the public is saying. But the party machine is delusional. We know that. (laughs) Oh, come on. Not on climate change. (laughs) (laughs) On just about everything, I think. So so what are some of the solutions that could be um, applied to this situation? We've just talked about why it doesn't work, why it's not sustainable, why it's a financial disaster, um, why nobody wants it. So... What what what, are, what does the sustainable future look like in in regards to forests and and providing raw materials? Well, we're already seeing it happening. It's already started. There is a, a plantation sector, um, not in exactly the same area as the native forest logging sector. It's more over around Tumut, Tumbarumba, that area, um, and y- you can see some of the the native forest, the former native forest loggers, are actually working in in that sector now. Some of the the machines have gone over there. Some of the trucks we now see um, cutting pine logs rather than native forest logs. It's happening already, mm. in spite of all the, all the um, government policies and and subsidies that prop up the the native forest sector. So this is a this is a viable alternative, right? Financially viable, yeah. resource viable. Um, so you're talking about pet plantation of hard and softwood, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> probably not so much hardwood. That hasn't really worked um, in in this region. But you don't need it. No. <laughs> there is enough hard, hardwood plantations around the country. For, yeah. for all our hardwood needs, even wood chipping. Mm-hmm. There is enough there to, to send those overseas, wood chip them and, and send them overseas mm-hmm. from plantations. Um, yep. And the thing that astounds me is you have people like Michael O'Connor and the CFMEU, CFMMEU, um, they pr- promoting, um, backing the native forest industry when the big employer is... And, and also membership of the CFMEU, mm. is the plantation industry. Now, they're selling them down the road, down the river, um, because while ever the buyers can get um, hardwood timber pretty well for free from, well, very cheaply from our native forests, um, the industry, plantation industry um, are not making those sales. Mm. So... 
they should be looking after those workers mm. in the plantation industry. And that's a renewable resource yes. too, right? Like, you know, you know, the native yeah. forest, it's gone. It's like another 200 years before you've got it back to that same place again or more. Yeah. But a plantation crop, right? Like a- yeah. And one of the uh, problems up the north coast that uh, Harriet alluded to is the mix of plantation and native forest because some of the forests over there that they've logged, up there, that they've logged and uh, regenerated, uh, they're calling them plantations. Now, to me, a plantation has been planned and planted in rows, but... Yeah, the harvester was the planter, in other words. Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, there's they're really muddying the waters up in the north coast mm. areas. Uh, I think the central and north coast, with this, you know, mix of calling um, re- regenerating forest plantations. Hmm. Well, I know that the E part of the CFEBU is, is quite progressive in the renewable energy sort of lobbying and and stuff, but the the F part seems to be lagging a bit. Is there much controversy within that massive, massive union? Uh, I, yes. Yeah, I think there is. One thing that was said in a, um, a meeting at the town hall with... Um, do you remember who they were? The minister for, in, responsible for forests was there, the NCC meeting at the town hall, Harriet? Ah, uh, yes. There was a... Um the uh, James Griffith. That's Griffin. him, yes. He said that when he was asked about forests, said that um, he's been talking with the CFMEU in the southeast about transition into plantations. Now, that was the Liberal Minister. So, yes, there's it's it's, it's happening. Yeah, yep. Oh, that's good. That's good. So the other thing that we mentioned last time we had some forest activists on the show, which we were talking with uh, Takisa, who's an Indigenous activist who was part of the tree sit at Chalo Crossing, mm. and we also had Sue Higginson on as well. Um, we were talking about the fact that there's been so many new laws passed that make it harder and harder to protest these activities. So you've got you know like new anti-protest laws. Uh, making it difficult for you to gather and to blockade and do things like that. So how, how are you working around those new challenges? Uh, yes, <laughs> that's a difficult one. Um, yeah, with $20,000 fines or whatever they are and jail time. Two years of jail. Yeah, and, yeah it's... Just, um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've spent time in jail. I've spent... Uh, I've had... Uh, and actually, I got a criminal conviction mm-hmm. at one stage for intimidating a log truck driver by standing in front of his truck um, and convicted. And it took me <laughs> two, two years to get that overturned in the district court. Um, but, yes, it's, it's, they certainly are making it scary. Mm-hmm. But I think we've just got to take them on. Mm-hmm. And um, They can't lock you all up. There isn't no. enough cells. That's right. <laughs> I mean, this is the one thing I, I did realise when they've, had, we've had activists on the show who've said, look, the scariest thing for them as a new activist was the threat of being locked up. Mm. And when it got down to the reality of it, they realised, well, there just aren't enough, you know, officers, there aren't enough cells, there aren't enough resources right. to lock up a large group of mm. protesters. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. They can charge you and fine you maybe, but they can't lock you all up. Yeah, well, a lot of mm. the cases that are going before the courts, um, the the judges or magistrates aren't... Mm. Um, overturning them, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're um, giving them good behaviour bonds or mm. um, small fines, but some of them are hitting them hard. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess the most so They're prominent... allowed to have a huge yeah. 
fine in jail time, but most of the choosing not to. Yes. Well, the probably most publicly prominent one that was of recent is Violet Coco, yeah. um, who was protesting on the Sydney Harbour Bridge about the defunding of the fire, rural fire services. And she was protesting with other rural firefighters who had fought the bushfires yeah. in 2019, 2020. And she was arrested for um, obstructing traffic, they think they said, for a fair total of 15 minutes. Yeah. And as it turned out, as the information came out later, she hadn't actually obstructed traffic at all and she hadn't done what they said she'd done. They made up a story yeah. that she'd stopped yeah. an ambulance. Yes, yes. That was bizarre. So they um, they gave her a, a, was it a threat of an 18-month jail term, yep. but it's been overturned, yes. thankfully. Well, she got an 18-month jail term yeah. Yeah, yeah, she in did. the courts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So that, that, on appeal. that, to me, seems, I don't know, like what would be a national outcry. Mm. You'd think that, you know, I couldn't imagine sitting on that bridge and being offended by that. If I was made 15 minutes late for work, I'd be mean, hoping everyone would get out of their cars and join us. Yes. Damn it, I really want to be at work. <laughs> but that is hard because you said you've got a lot of people nearly to activism who just really care about what's happening, but they're not hardened activists. They're not, you know, they're, they're, you can really intimidate them quite easily, I think, mm. you know, with a lot of these, these overtures and threats and things like that. So it, it must be hard to organise now to... Um, to, to get to a place where you feel confident in when you're setting up a blockade or, you know, organising a protest. Like, are, are there different approaches to that now? Is, you know, it sort of used to be everyone just turned up with their banners and their placards and off they went. The, the penalties um, for breaches of the Forestry Act have always been tougher than for other sorts of protests. That's not, not a new thing for the forest activists. They are certainly a lot worse now than they were, say, 10 years ago. Yeah. But well, they've always been pretty tough. Well, Scotty's a, um, a blockader, an ex-blockader. He's been on the front lines, and you've often shared how difficult it was, some of these situations, to yeah. well, stand up to be, the authorities. <laughs> but it's also brilliant. If you want to find a sense of community with a bunch of people who are really passionate about what they're doing, mm. go to a blockade. Yeah. You'll also learn how to organise yourselves in a group rather than having a top-down sort of organisation. So it's the ultimate cooperative. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a collective. Collective, yeah. yes. Forest collective. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's quite amazing to, um, to be there in a blockade. Um, and I, I think what we try for now is you only have one or two people who are arrestable. Everybody else follows directions, um, you know, and that, that was always the case that, you know, you've... Back in Tantawanglo and Coolangubra days, um, the, you had people who would will, be willing to ar be arrested and you had those who weren't and... My job then doing uh, police liaison, as I was doing back then, um, was to um, brief the protesters. And, I mean, we'd end up with hundreds of people turn up for a, for a protest um, to not to take um, action on the spur of the moment um, because you've got to make arrangements for... Because you're taken off to court, you're charged and, and released up there. You need transport, you need your car dealt with, all that sort of stuff. That, um, But there were, there were mass numbers then, uh, more so than there are today. So it's whittled down now mm -hmm. to just uh, one or two people that are uh, willing to be arrested and... Um, 
Yeah, it can be fun, can't it, Scotty? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> One of my best was on uh, the north side of Gulaga. They were logging up there and uh, I... Um, this is the one where I was... It's just near Tilba, isn't yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. the track's off Tilba Tilba, I believe, isn't it? The yeah. track up the to Gorlick? The track yeah. of, yeah. of the walking track, yeah, yeah, but this was the way round the back mm -hmm. from central Tilba, that, that, round that way. And uh, I was standing in front of the truck. I'd go in there in the early mornings mm -hmm. and uh, people would come and then I'd go off to work in Maruya. And uh, anyway, this day they came in early and uh, before I'd gone to work and I'm just standing there in front of the truck and charged me with intimidation, threw me in the back of the paddy wagon. And so I still had my phone with me and rang ABC Radio in Beagle and they put me live to air. Oh, in the back of the paddy wagon. Yes. Oh, I love that. So I arrived at Naruma Police Station. They were furious. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they can be funny. We had involved. a similar story For about God's it. For God's sake, George, take the phone off <laughs> yeah. of them. Yes, well, it was a bit more abusive than that. Yeah. Last February we interviewed... Um, the freedom protesters when they were in Canberra and they were actually being removed from the old Parliament House lawns area. Yep. And we had Michael Gray Griffith, who does Cafe Locked Out. He's got a, like a travelling thing where he interviews people around Australia oh, about their right. experiences. He had to, had and he was in the middle of being they... dragged off and arrested live on air. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, like, we got all that live on air. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's just sometimes, it's, yeah, yeah. It's sometimes nice to the people to hear firsthand what's happening, yeah. you know, rather than the... Um, curated version on the, the six o'clock news later mm, that day. Yeah. Mm. Well, ABC mm. was really good back then. <laughs> I don't know they'd yeah. do it again. Yeah. Um, they probably wouldn't stuff. be allowed to now. No, they probably yeah. got a wrap so. on the knuckles themselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's brilliant. That's probably one of the best news stories I've heard, Sean. I love it. Was it was one of my highlights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what, what came out of that? What, you know, after, after that aired, like obviously live on air, did, did you have support when you arrived at the lockup or what happened? No, there was. Um, I was I was um, put in the cell there at uh, Naruma Police Station, and they offered bail conditions of not going within ten kilometres of the coop, the logging coop, which meant I wouldn't be able to go to work. So I said, no, I'm not going to sign that. So then I was put in the prisoner transport vehicle and taken up to appear before the magistrate in Batemans Bay to get that changed mm -hmm. and they did change it so I could then go to work but uh, yeah it was it um, I then represented myself and was convicted <laughs> and that's the one that took you two years to overturn right? yeah. yeah but I you know I cross-examined over four days um, every one of their witnesses mm -hmm. and every one of them except one lied mm. and I thought well, that's easy. <laughs> but he took their word for it and yeah. Yeah, I was I was able to show that they'd lied, mm. but yeah. That was that we was had a sorry, we, we had a similar experience once, um, after a protest at the chip mill. We had a whole lot of people uh arrested and given bail conditions and one of them was that they they weren't able to go within uh, I think it was six kilometres of the chip mill. And it turned out that the courthouse was within that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these regional communities, everything's pretty close together, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you, 
turned up for the court hearing. You were breaching your breaching your bowel conditions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wonder how that went when they said, "Well, I can't come to court because of this reason." Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that didn't help actually. <laughs> <laughs> So what are the... Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So what's that, Scotty? Oh, look, I'm just thinking, yeah. should we change the subject? <laughs> oh, no, this is, this is good fodder for the listeners, I think. Ah, well, I you ask it. a question then. Yeah. Well, I guess um, now would be the main thing is somebody who's listening to the show has been really upset. Like, you know, maybe we've got a few South Coast listeners and people that live in, you know, beautiful bushland. They want to do something, but maybe they're not quite up to going to a blockade. What sort of action can people take? Um, you know, is is there other sort of campaign action that they can get involved in or educate themselves or um, at least spread the truth of what's happening so that people who are maybe unaware in the cities find out what's really going on? One of the main things that I'm involved in is... is um social media and spreading that word through social media about what's going on um so on facebook for example or uh twitter um people can look up the southeast region conservation alliance and can um join up with that facebook page or um, that's circa for short i think circa and yeah so i um I put a lot of stuff on there and then that's sort of stuff from mostly around New South Wales but I also include Victoria and particularly East Gippsland um, and there's a lot going on so I spend quite a bit of time on that um, much to some friends annoyance that I post so much but yeah <laughs> so that's that's the way to and amongst that is petitions there's lots of petitions um, and some of those are government petitions to federal and state governments where you put in your details, you then get an email to confirm it, and um, they are the really official ones, but there's also... So when you get to a certain them. number, you can actually present that petition, yes, right? Yes, yeah. that's right. And that's what Takisa did. She yeah. did the one to end Native 21,000 signatures, yes, I think she got. Yeah, so that was, um, that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, she's dynamo, that woman. Yes. Yeah. And she told us a lovely story about she was up in the tree and a goanna came to visit her. Yes. <laughs> she stayed all day. Conversation with the goanna up in the tree. Yeah. It was quite lovely. So well, that's, that's, that's a great way to start. Now, what about education? Because I've noticed you're wearing a T-shirt here that says Forest Embassy. Yeah. Could you tell us about the Forest Embassy? Well, when they were logging Karana State mm-hmm. Forest, which is just near Mystery Bay, um, we decided then to set up this forest, indus- mm. uh, forest embassy. So we set up a table mm. and a little marquee and uh, forest embassy <laughs> sign and um, cars would stop by and we'd um, talk to them and, and um, just give them information. Then a lot of people came out and we ended up blockading um, one of the trucks leaving. Mm. Um, yeah, so um, there were a lot of wins out of that mm. in terms of... Uh, forestry realised that they had to be very careful so they stuck to the rules and we we had found um, a, uh, an eagle nest that had nest in it so they, they ruled out that side of the, the highway altogether um, we did find this one so the owl that yep. you've got on your t-shirt beautiful um, owl and is that a boobook owl? no it? it's a um, Oh, Marskdale. Right. Um, so that was photographed down at a water thing, but they 
didn't take any notice of that because mm-hmm. we couldn't find its nest. Mm. You couldn't it was give in the there physical evidence. Yeah. Because with the, with the mast <laughs> owl, they would have had to cancel the whole logging operation because of the area that was required. Mm. But, um, no, yes. It's much easier to just cancel the owl, isn't it? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the Forest Embassy is now continued. Where we have protests, we have the banner and, and you know, it's, it's there to educate people about it so people can come to the embassy, inspired by, of course, the tent embassy yes. here in Canberra. Which um, which is still ongoing, which oh, yes. is wonderful. I call in there just about every time I come up here, whenever I can. And, yeah, wonderful. It's been amazing. That. So, so where is the location of the Forest Embassy again, if people want to stop in? Wherever wherever they're logging or we're protesting. Okay, so you just look for the tent and the sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. If you see it in your travels, just stop mm-hmm. in and stop say in. good day. Yes, yeah. 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 Scotty, Scotty's stopped in there at um, Brumen. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. where I've met The Brumen State Forest. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. In the last few months, we've also been doing a, a stall in Bega on, on Fridays, which is part of the Fridays for Forests um, campaign that people up and down the coast have, have been involved in. That's been really good because it, it brings in people to talk about um, what they can do um, we can put them on an email list. We can get them to sign any current petitions that are going and just uh, have a chat with, with them about um, where it's at, how they can help. It's, it's been a really successful thing. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably... The original idea was to just keep going until the election, but we'll probably keep going, maybe not so frequently, but we'll certainly keep doing it. It's been really good. Mm, and I guess what you're, what you're getting at is that this is a like the refugee issue. It's entirely dependent on politicians as a group and, and the major parties in particular changing their minds on this issue. So I guess, yeah, how do you get those absolutely stuck-in-the-mud group of small group to change their minds on this? Mm, the big question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, Just keep reminding them about mm, public yeah. opinion, I think. Yeah. Or maybe voting for the community independence movement's a pretty good way to do it too. Yeah. Mm. Certainly a lot of communities have benefited from that. Yeah. Well, we're seeing more and more disregard of public opinion, though, with governments as they're becoming bolder and more arrogant and entitled. Mm. You know, I mean, I always remember that one time Barnaby Joyce was interviewed and he was reminded about his young son being impacted by the decisions that he was making today. And Barnaby's response, well, I'll be dead by then, so it'll be fine. Mm. Like, you know, this is the father of a young child. So, yeah. you know, there, there really is this a certain lean of, I don't know, just arrogant is the word I can think of. There's probably words I can't sign in I can think yeah. of as well but you know it's, it's that sense of uh, we don't really care what the public thinks we're going to do what we want to do anyway because we've proven that we can and you can't stop us well out of that mm. comes the realisation mm. by the people that they're not representing us mm. they're representing big business and yeah that's they won't last long in public opinion when as that becomes more and more evident in their behaviour well I hope that, that that is true because there's um 
so much unrest. I've been watching and like a lot of friends in the UK and they're all of their unelected prime ministers they've been rolling out over mm. the last 12 months yeah. um, who have upset the whole country. With, you know, they've just passed some really strict anti-protest laws yeah. in the UK that have made it virtually impossible to gather and protest in the city of London. Yeah. Um, so you've got, um, you, you've got very, um, I don't know, very very strong bodies that seem to be immune to public opinion. <laughs> we need a reaction like Paris. Yes. Tear up the streets, <laughs> blockade, <laughs> burn the buses. Well, what was interesting, it's harder actually, with Asphalt than it is with cobblestones. It is, yes. But I did, um, I did listen to a few of the interviews they did with some of the protesters in Paris. And again, it was interesting. It was ordinary people. It wasn't these vigilantes. It wasn't a bunch of people, you know, who were questionably maybe not activists, but you know, anarchists. Oh, we've got a bit of a noise there somewhere in the background. But anyway, yeah, it was it was average people who had yeah. just had enough. They'd taken to the streets, you know, and they actually, when they spoke to the interviewer, they said, look, they looked in the camera and they said, hey, Australia, hey, New Zealand, hey, US, pay attention to what we're doing here because you need to do the same thing. Mm. And that was over a raise in the pension age, right? Like, yeah. That wasn't over something um, which I would consider maybe um, more volatile, like, you know, the destruction of our environment. Yeah, well, Harrod's very familiar with Paris. <laughs> They've got a very strong uh, protest culture in Paris. Mm. Well, you know, where did the Marciers come from, right? <laughs> yes. And there's that whole, you know, the... the, the Storm the Bastille. Yes, it's, it's quite a bloody anthem. It talks, oh, and I, yeah. maybe I shouldn't even say it on air, but, you know, it talks about doing some pretty nasty things to the people in power. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, a, for those who maybe don't speak French, I can say, Asaira, Asaira, les artocrates sont la tête. So if you know what that one means, <laughs> you'll know the, the lines from the Marciers yeah. for that one. But, um, yeah, it is a very different approach to resisting yeah. government policy that you don't agree with. Mm. Uh, to have I, I a, a nation so. come together like that. I think the the uh, the industry, the logging industry, is um, c concerned about public opinion. Mm. I mean, even in 2018, the they commissioned a major um, survey of public opinion on mm. on the social license of the logging industry. It was it was enormous. It was 13,000 respondents, and they found that 70 percent of people in urban areas and 65% of people in rural areas considered that continuing native forest logging was unacceptable. Yeah. This was an industry commissioned survey, 13,000 people, and they uh, never released it for some reason. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> but, but a draft of, of it was was uh, leaked, and it did come out. It was it was a very respectable and and um, you know it had very high integrity. It was commissioned. Um, at University of Canberra academics were commissioned to do it, so that they're conscious of it, mm. and and they're very nervous about it. Although they never released the final report, they never disowned it either. Which I think sort of hoping you wouldn't pay too much attention, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, we're wrong there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it was a real bonus that. Yeah. 
So um, we do have a couple of listener questions that's come through and also I wanted to give you some time to talk about the events you've got coming up in Tilba. Um, so have, uh, can we switch to that just before we uh, wind up there? Yeah, that's fine yeah. with me. So we've got a question that's actually come through from Kuma. It's from a lady called Caroline in Kuma and she's asking what's happening with the ongoing logging in the Great Koala National Park. Are you able to tell us about that? Uh, this is on the north coast. Yep. Um, there is logging going ahead there. The, the local uh, forest campaigners are trying to, to get it stopped, but so far they haven't succeeded in that. Uh, they're quite hopeful that the new environment minister might have a, a stronger approach to some of these things than her predecessors. But so far, um, it's not happening. Mm. Yeah. Is this the silver culture we were mentioning earlier, is it? <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's very strong petitions going and representations. So writing on, to on that minister would be a good government. way to go. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so. yes. And what's the minister's name there they can write to? Uh, what's Penny Sharp. Oh, to, to the Environment Minister. Penny yes. Sharp, the okay. the um, Forestry Minister is... Have, have they worked uh, out yet? That's quite a problem to, say, to answer. Yes. Who the forestry minister is because there's, there's some doubt about it. Mm. Right. It's well, Penny Sharp's a good, a good start yes. if they want to do yeah. a bit of a letter writing campaign. Definitely. And uh, we've also got a question from one of our young listeners. Um, we've got Darcy, who's 10, and he's asking about the pink cockatoo he heard is endangered. Is that in your forests that are being logged right now? No. Okay. So, but we've got plenty of other yes. <laughs> including the gang gang. Yeah, the glossy black cockatoos. The glossy blacks, yeah. yeah the gang gang. Swift parrots now mm-hmm. and then. Yeah, swift parrots when they come yeah. through. So they nest in the little um, hollows, right? So yeah, well, their nesting is done yeah. in Tasmania, yeah. but up here they feed on the, the flowering Right, so gums. it's a very particular time so, of the year. Yes, that they, they need come that, through yeah. when they are in flower. So it's a migratory yep. stop for them. It right. is. Right. Yep. Okay. What else we've got? Quolls, bandicoots. The gang, the gang gang. So I know they have a special place... Um, for Canberra people, 3,000 gangangs, it's estimated, were killed in the Black Summer fires. Mm. You know, so everyone is precious now. Mm. Yes, indeed. And they need hollows for their breeding. And there's an awful lot of them down on the south coast at the moment, which is fantastic. Mm. But, you know, they're going to need to keep increasing their numbers to make up for that terrible legacy of the fires. Mm. Well, all our animals, all our, all our fauna is going to end up like, you know, the, the koala is heavily impacted yeah. again, you know, and koala yeah. forest being so precious. But, yeah. um, you know, this this is the thing where you had the whole country and probably the rest of the world grieving for the, the, the animals suffering during the bushfires. And, you know, we've less than two years down the road, here we are destroying their habitat, you know. Yeah, and, and as Harriet said, it's the hollows. Mm-hmm. And that's the older trees that have those hollows. Mm-hmm. They are essential for so many different birds and animals to nest in. And without them, they're not going to survive. I had heard they were making some... Um, well, it's not really artificial because they're made of timber, but they're making hollows to try and attach to trees to help. Is, mm. is that been something that's happening down the coast as well? Yes, it has <laughs> been with um, a lot yeah. of the rescue organisations and get those out. And I, I noticed, I saw um, a few months back, 
a way of um, drilling into a tree and creating a hollow in a, in a younger okay. tree. So um, whether that's a possibility or not, I don't know. Okay, well, that sounds lovely. And there is an event coming up, I believe, on April 10th. Um, it's the Forest Theatre, is that right? It's tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. So um, could you tell us about Forest Theatre for anyone that's down the coast and would like to go uh, attend that? That's on in the Tilba Hall. Um, it's a thing that was developed by Richard Cook, who's also a member of the Gulaga Protection Group, which is a member of Circa. And, uh, yeah, he developed this musical um, to tell the story of the forests. And, um, yes, I haven't seen it yet. And because I'm up here at the National, I won't see it this time, but I will catch up with it. <laughs> Sounds lovely. Get Harriet so to film it. Yeah, yeah. that is perfect. Maybe you can live stream it, Harriet. Are you going, Harriet? Um. Probably not. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's quite away from being yeah, up yeah, to Yeah, it is. Tilbury. Tilbury's quite away. Well, it's a free event. I believe there's no charge to attend. No, that's right. Yep. And it's at 7pm. The doors open and it's in the Central Tilbury School of Arts. Yes. That's right. So folks that would like to go and attend or we've got a few listeners actually down Bermagui Way that might oh, excellent. like mm. to um, trot into that one. So oh, yeah, the Forest Theatre, live band and cinematic show with singer-songwriter Richard Cook. So if you'd like to um, pop on down to that tomorrow evening. It sounds like a, a lovely evening. Meet some great people. Yeah, well, the um, Tilba Festival is usually on on Easter Saturday, but they have now changed that to later in the year. Um, right, I so o- I saw that they, they changed yeah. the date. Yeah. So there's a few things happening tomorrow in Tilba just to for the people who turn up and don't realise that the Tilba Festival isn't on. Right, okay. Well, that's, a, that's a nice way to do it. Yeah. Okay, well, we're just about to wind up here. So what's the Call best way... the Tilba residual. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with either of you and your organisations? We did touch on that at the beginning of the show. For people that have tuned in late, maybe you could let them know how they can get in touch and get involved. Easiest way is um, either through our Facebook page, which is Circa, or the website, circa.org.au, and there's a contact email there that people can use. Wonderful. And there's quite some great articles and things on the website too that people can read up about what's going on, and Facebook, you've posted all of the, the current actions and events as well. Yep. Yep. There's also also connected with um, Circa is the Great Southern Forest proposal, which we developed quite a few years back as a proposal for ending native forest logging. So uh, the Great Southern Forest um, website and also Facebook page. Mm, wonderful. And we actually posted some links to those things that uh, were just being referred to on our Behind the Lines page as well. So folks that follow our page there can have a look and follow those links. And I shared it on the circus site as well. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. So that's wonderful to have you both on the show with us this morning. And I hope that the weekend dries out for you, Sean, at the Folk Festival, that you're not uh, in a torrential downpour for no, the next th- three days. I think it's going to ease off tomorrow. Okay, mm. fantastic. Tents can be a really good way to collect water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, so we wanted to thank you for joining us today. That's uh, in studio with us is Sean Burke. And via phone calling from the beautiful South Coast Forest is Harriet Swift. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us on the show this morning. And to our listeners, please do follow up and find out more information about their amazing campaigns and activities. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA. 
and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. CoCanberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.